Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Matt and Evangeline and Judah for leading us this morning. It's already been such a tender morning and um, I'm grateful for already for the input uh, from Stephanie and Cheryl Bear, my video, and also Sini uh, is going to share in a few minutes. I'd like uh, this sharing today to be kind of a, um, if you could just see our end game is communion. We're going to be having communion together in a few minutes. This is a communion Sunday. So encourage you to have your elements uh, here. Um, really miss uh, speaking to you live. Uh, when I teach, I see my face or I see my video presentation, but I don't see you. So I don't know if you've just gone to watch your favorite Netflix series or, or if you're still there. I'm trusting you're still there. Uh, but looking forward to some more meaningful interaction and engagement, even if it's just the look on your face uh, saying that you're interested and that uh, this is saying something to you, um, uh, which you used to do at church, uh, otherwise, or you may have been good actors. <laughs> but um, this morning, we're going to continue our teaching series on the book of John, entitled Embodiment, Seeing the Good News through the eyes of John the Beloved. And this morning we're looking at that text that we've just read from John chapter six, verses uh, 16 to 24. John's version of Jesus walking on the water. Um, and uh, I, I wanna introduce today by uh, a quote from Albert Einstein, who said that the most important question, and this is interesting coming from a physicist, the most important question that humanity must address is, is the universe friendly? Is the universe friendly? And I think John addresses that in our text today. And the reason why this was so important for Einstein, he said, because if we believe that the universe is friendly, then we will or sorry, if we believe that it's unfriendly, then we will invest all of our resources and our energies in building walls and defending ourselves and even attacking that imagined unfriendliness, that, unf that enemy, and destroying them, even if, and it could and probably likely will, will likely result in us destroying ourselves. But if we believe that the universe is friendly, then we will invest all of our resources and energies in cooperating with the universe. Uh, he, he intuitively sensed that the universe was wired for love. That as Julian Norwich said, we were, the universe was made, there wasn't anything made that wasn't made out of love. And it's loved by God and sustained by God. Love is how the universe is wired. And so this is the question that John addresses, not just as a fresh, bright-eyed eyewitness of the life of Jesus, but as an elder 50 years after all of these things happened. And now he's a pastor. He's, he's, he's an elder over many, many churches, an apostle, a church planter, a disciple maker. And they're wrestling, they're coming to grips with this, uh, this issue of, is the universe friendly. And he wrote uh, in his pastoral letters, 
he said it this way, that those who fear are not mature, cannot be matured in love, but perfect love or mature love casts out all fear. Kind of John's way of saying the same thing as Einstein. And of course, that's a bit of a hard sell, isn't it? Is the universe friendly? Uh, just by looking at our world day to day in the news and, and all of us still reeling in this national collective grief of this discovery of uh, 250 indigenous uh, children, uh, their, their remains at the site of this Kamloops residential school that we're all grieving and mourning still today. And although it should be no shock, our indigenous friends have been telling us this for years. Uh, it's in, listed in item 71 to 76 of the calls to action in the TRC uh, summary. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been listening. But it's no less shocking when the actual remains begin to be discovered. And we're grieving that today. I think uh, all of us are struggling. And I appreciate our Indigenous friends for leading the way. We need your help in, in grieving this, in processing this. And you've been doing such an amazing job. And we need to realize that this idea of is the universe friendly was a hard, equally hard sell for John's generation. Uh, you have to remember that his audience had suffered greatly at the hands of Domitian and Nero, these Roman empires that had persecuted them. Most of the, the apostles, probably by the time John wrote this, had already died a violent death. They'd been beheaded like Paul. They'd been thrown off cliffs like James, the physical brother of Jesus, half-brother. Half uh, Peter had been crucified upside down, probably. That's what they're saying. And John himself, if you can believe it, was thrown as an elder into a boiling cauldron of oil. They tried to boil him alive. And miraculously, he was uh, sustained. And so they gave up, pulled him out, and, and, and exiled him to the island of Pat Patmos, uh, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so John was, if anybody was tempted to have an us versus them universe and to put up walls and to be traumatized. It was, it was John's generation. But the whole message of this passage, as well as John's writing, is, is the universe friendly? And in our text today, uh, Jesus has just performed this uh, miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that we talked about last week. And they, it, the, the crowd was so enamored by this, that they tried to make Jesus king. So he is, he got away alone to a mountain and he gave his, his disciples instructions to go down and wait at the shore for, uh, for him to come. And if he didn't come by dark, they were to leave. And you, you kind of have to read between the lines to arrive at that. And so um, this, this boat uh, here was from the time of Christ. It was discovered in 1986, right during the year that Kathleen and I were actually on the seashores of Galilee and Israel, they've done a replica rebuild of that boat. So it looked kind of like this. And they, they headed from the opposite shore. If you can see the opposite shore and, and maybe a little bit south to your right of there is where they were. And it was about a 10 uh, kilometer uh, uh, sail back to Capernaum where they were to go. And John writes, he comments that they waited for Jesus. And 
we think that he may have still been an adolescent at this time, maybe 18, 19 years old, or a very young man. And he's encountering fear. He's encountering insecurity about the fact that it was dark, but Jesus hadn't come yet. It's, and John wanted his disciples and his churches to know that uh, these kind of things can be expected in our journey of discipleship. Where all is dark and Christ is absent, even though he said he would never leave us. But all the great saints and mystics can testify of dark nights of the soul, where it seems like God is absent from our lives. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. John of the Cross, Mother Teresa, Teresa of Avila, all of these great people of God uh, describe long periods where they don't feel the presence of God, where everything is dark. And often, and self-examination is good, but often guilt kicks in and you ask the question, what have I done wrong? Maybe there's something wrong with me. And John wanted them to know that these experiences can be expected. I know in my own life, I've gone through years of where I just had to walk by sheer faith, just in utter darkness. But the difference, the clue that God is still around is it really matters that God feels absent. You know, when I was living in sin and for the devil, it didn't matter. But it, it's the greatest anguish of my heart when I feel that God is absent. So that's a sign of grace. And the second thing that happened is as they got out into the middle of the lake, the winds were contrary and the waves were high. And John Rose writes that they were, uh, not only was Christ absent, but they hit some problems. And what kind of timing is that? And don't we experience that? You know, why, why don't our difficulties and problems come when, when Christ is present, when we're, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit and God's presence is real? But often our greatest trial, trials and struggles in our walk are going to hit when God seems absent. Now, Jewish people were not keen on, the, on water and on the sea. Uh, the Phoenicians in the north were more the seafaring race, but they, they, they had a fear of the sea and the ocean. Uh, the sea was associated with chaos and evil and untamable forces and fear of the unknown. Basically, the sea was a picture of their greatest fears. And that's why we have the Genesis story uh, where the waters represented chaos and darkness and the unknown. And yet Genesis opens by saying that the spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the waters. And so that's why the psalmist in Psalm 29 celebrated God as enthroned over the flood. And Job wrote that God stretched out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. And the prophet Isaiah celebrated the Exodus story of going through the Red Sea as you led your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waves, though your footprints were not seen. Jesus' footprints were not seen as he walked on the water in this story. So just like last week, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and plus was in the background to the backdrop of the, um, the miraculous manna in the wilderness. So today's story is to the backdrop of the crossing of the Red Sea. And, and Jesus and John assures his audience that there will be days when the winds are going to be against you and the waters will be rough. 
in spite of your best efforts. He, he said, you are going to have trouble and tribulation. It's part of the job description of your life. Life is beautiful. Life is hard. I heard the great philosopher Steve Colbert, Stephen Colbert, <laughs> and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but he is a bit of a philosopher. He said it this, this way, existence is a gift, and with existence comes suffering. And again, the question is why? Why Christ's absence? Why the darkness? Why this suffering? Why this contrary winds and where the waves are, are raised? And the question, that's a philosophical question we don't have time to address today. We just know it happens. It happens. And John says we shouldn't be surprised. But there is a, there is a connection between suffering and love. So Christ draws near, but our fear obscures him. And how ironic is it that the one that brought them the greatest hope was the source of their greatest fear because they didn't recognize it. Seeing a ghost for them, as I've shared before, was an omen of, it was like a, a, a harbinger of disaster. It, was, it really meant if you saw a ghost that you were going to die. They basically assumed that. And so here their greatest hope becomes their greatest fear because fear obscured him. How often does fear obscure our view of Christ being with us? So in this lockdown, the isolation that you're experiencing, the depression, the job layoff, the struggle with addictions that you and I may have, the fear, how is Christ coming to you? What glasses do we have on? So Christ speaks to them on the water and he says, I am, don't be afraid. And of course, this sparks recognition. They realize it's the Lord. Not just that it was Jesus, the, the physical person that they knew, but that those words, I am, sparked a, a greater recognition. Does that ring a bell? This was the same one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, I am, and then led them through the Red Sea. And as he's walking on the water, get the picture. He says, I am, don't be afraid. And all of a sudden this parallel as the Lord who reigns over the flood is saying, I am, I'm here, I'm with you. There's a sense of recognition. Don't be afraid. That's easy, right? Hey, I'm here. Don't be afraid. Well, to not be afraid is easier said than done, isn't it? When we're facing those waves, when those winds are in our face, especially if you suffered trauma in your life, which most of us have, by the way, to greater or lesser degrees. And trauma stays in our bodies. We can't just think it away or wish it away. It, it, I was just... Uh, intrigued by the testimony of this African-American woman, Viola Fletcher, who was describing the Tulsa massacre of 1921. She was seven years old. She's now 107 years old. And I was listening to her testimony on TV this week. And she talks about how that from that day, get this, from that day, a hundred years ago, she has not been able to sleep without the lights on in her room. Can you imagine a hundred years and having to sleep with the lights on? 
because of the trauma of the violence that was inflicted on that African-American community in Tulsa. She can still smell the smoke. She can hear, still hear the explosions. Trauma. There's a fellow named Rick Hansen, and this is not the Rick Hansen we know from BC, but a neuroscientist that talks about how trauma affects most of us. He talks about the Velcro Teflon theory of the mind. In, and, and that our, our brains are like Velcro when it comes to negative things. We tend to dwell on the negative from the past, things going on in the present. And if, and if we somehow resolve those two things, we start dwelling on the negative of what's going to, what might happen or we're sure is going to happen in the future. What can go wrong? Conversely, when it comes to gratitude and hopefulness, he says our brains are like Teflon. They just slip right out. It's like we're born doubters. I wonder if most of us were just traumatized when we were born. Larry Crabb says we're born doubters. I wonder if just the separation from our mother's body and leaving that comfort and warmth into a cold, strange world isn't traumatic in itself. And Gabor Matej says that most addictions are related to trauma around that birth time. So there's something to that. So how, how do we overcome our fear? Well, the scriptures tell us in this story that when they, they heard the I am, don't be afraid. It says they received, they made a decision to receive Jesus into the, mo the boat. So every moment of our lives is a choice. They made a decision. And John comments that they immediately arrived at their destination. Wow. They were just translated supernaturally from halfway across the lake to the shore. In other words, they did what they could do. And God did what only God can do. Don't we get in trouble when we mix those up? We try to do what, what only God can do. God says, no, do, do what you can do. And I'll take care of you of the other parts that you can't. That fear, that trauma, those are things, those addictions, those are things I'll take care of. But just receive, receive me into your boat. I am, don't be afraid. So what does this look like for us? How do we make this choice to take Christ into our boat, into our lives when we're facing trauma and fear? Hansen found that for a positive thought, to have any imprint on our neurons, our brain neurons, we must consciously hold on. We must make a choice to hold on to a positive thought or feeling for a minimum of 15 seconds. Don't let it slip through like that Teflon. Grab it and hold on to it intentionally. We must make a continual choice to embrace hope and gratitude. The way that Paul worded it, is he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then the very next verse, he goes on to say, whatever is true, noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things. And God will do what only God can do. The God of peace will be with you. Does that sound trite and shallow? Remember where Paul wrote this. He was in chains, languishing in a Roman jail. And many of his contemporaries were as well. But this is the practice of contemplation. When we intentionally choose to uh, 
hold those hopes and gratitudes and praiseworthy things. So the signpost to a, a friendly universe and the greatest way to cooperate and to work with it is to is making the choice each moment to trust that we are God's beloved, regardless of our circumstances, and then choose to love as we've been loved. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Henry Nouwen has this beautiful podcast, and it's called You Are God's Beloved. And he said, we've been, we've been given this life for two reasons. First of all, to discover how beloved we are by God. And number two, to say thank you and to give back, to give that love back to God by loving others. Why do we make it so complicated? But easier said than done when Jesus seems absent and it gets dark and the winds blow and the waves rise and he shows up and he looks more like a ghost than he does like our helper. But we help each other learn that we are God's beloved. We help each other in this journey, don't we? That's what communion and breaking bread and encouraging one another is all about. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be naive. I think some aspects of fear and trauma need medical help, need professional help. Even in my own story, many of you have heard, I suffered a severe psychotic breakdown in 1988. And for one year, I was tormented by trauma and fear. I believed that I was falling into hell and I, that God had abandoned me and forsaken me. And the, the terror was indescribable. Well, there was a lot of things going on, but it's amazing that God's grace came to me through my medical doctor after a year. And he gave me this medication and I, and I started to take it. And I fell asleep for three days. And when I woke up, I felt like a human being again. I felt the presence of God again. So it showed me that embodiment is so important, that, that wholeness means being attentive to our spirit, soul, and body. Now, I say this with a, a caveat. Medication is not to be a replacement for tending to our heart and our issues and spiritual matters and choosing to think upon the good and the true and the lovely. But I believe that medicine is a way that, as Einstein said, we cooperate with the love of the universe. The vaccines are a way that we co cooperate with a loving universe. Um, the way that I see gardeners in, in our neighborhood, I watch them cooperating with the love of this universe. And I think another way that helps us deal with trauma in our lives is art. And I'm so appreciative of indigenous art. It is helping us grieve, helping us know that the universe is friendly. And this one by Tyler Gannell, many of you have seen this or posted it or shared it. He sketched this uh, piece of art uh, related to the 215 uh, discovered remains of children in Kamloops. And it's a picture of an elder coming to bring the little ones home. And he, he described that their hearts show the white because to me, the white shows that there is still hope and there is still love left. Art encourages us. And then this beautiful one by Whitney Gould. And she, a friend of hers from the same town of Wakokmak in, this is Cape Breton Island, 
uh, in Nova Scotia. She's a Mi'kmaq artist. And she painted this, the eagle for indigenous people was a bridge between the spiritual and the physical world. And the orange of course represents the indigenous uh, children that were in residential school, both those that have passed and those who are survivors and their families. She wrote, she drew this beautiful portrait and a small voice whispers, they found us. Just hold this for a moment and allow this art to bring grace to you. Every morning I thank the Lord for being my shepherd. And that he found me. And he continues to find me. He continues to seek for me and find me. And he continues to search for me and rescue me. Better than the North Shore rescue, as amazing as those people are. Jesus is my search and rescue, my S-O-R, S-A-R. So where are you in the story? Is it dark and he's absent? Have the wind and waves risen? Are there huge fears coming at you and he's trying to open your eyes to see him in the fears? Where am I in the story today and how might Christ be coming to me in my greatest fears right now? Just take a moment in silence with that and let's just reflect on that. <clears throat> 